Hello, and welcome to the Strategic Finance Lab podcast, home of Neu Group interviews and insights about the future of finance and the office of the CFO. I'm Anthony Michaels, editor of Neu Group Insights. In this episode, Nilia Sadies, Neu Group's Managing Director of Research and Insight, speaks with Kofi Bruce. He's the CFO of General Mills. They talk about the role FP&A teams need to play at organizations trying to navigate a world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. It's a vision where, beyond keeping the corporate scorecard, FP&A connects information from across the enterprise and uses its vantage point in the flow of information to develop foresight that produces insight that leads to action that supports business growth. Kofi also discusses the hard pivot finance team leaders who are used to precision in forecasting and planning have had to make because of the unknowns created by the pandemic, all while remaining indispensable business partners who influence key decisions. Enjoy the show. Here's Nilly. Hi, Kofi. It's nice to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. Let's get started with just a quick introduction. If you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your finance career. Sure. I am uh, presently the chief financial officer at General Mills. I've been a General Mills employee for a little over 13 years. Held a variety of roles at General Mills, including corporate treasurer role, several uh, divisional and segment fit business finance roles. Um, and immediately prior to becoming the CFO, I was the corporate controller where I had responsibility for FP&A, um, and I also served as the principal accounting officer for the company. I started my career actually at Ford, which is one of those great um, finance academy companies. I was there for six years, had seven different roles spanning from treasury all the way through corporate finance and, uh, and ultimately business finance. And uh, I spent about five years after that at Ecolab before joining General Mills. So that's quite the career. Thank you. Um, and definitely great background for our conversation today. But um, let me start because you mentioned these different roles. Which among them would you say you rely upon or think about and, and kind of plays a role in your role as a CFO now? You know, oddly, all of them. Uh, I think one of the things I've benefited from is a, a pretty broad finance career. If you look at the CFO roles, and I, I looked at particular some statistics from about three years ago, and the most common places where uh, CFOs kind of generate from internally are either the control side, so the, the controllers and accounting function, or the business side. I think I've had the benefit of exposure to a broad set of experiences that cover both of those, but also treasury, shared services, M&A, and that. So I, I've used actually something from every one of those uh, roles. And so as I came into the job, I, I had a fair amount of exposure to a lot of the critical elements of the role just through my natural career progression. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, we see the same business versus controller accountant path and you've got both, so that's that's excellent. Well, and and this dirty secret is I'm actually not an accountant, but um, I did I did play one for uh, a number of years in that role, just as I was preparing to become CFO. I had a conversation yesterday with one of our members who comes from accounting now in FPNA. We were talking about the skill set um, for both functions and how much of a crossover can you have. I wonder what you think about that, given that you've been in 
all those roles. Yeah, well, it, it is, um, it, if, if you aspire to be CFO, I think it's a mistake to assume that the job is either just a, you know, a, a more stressful, um, heavier lift on, the, in a, on a business finance role. And equally so, if you have exposure only to accounting, the job is also much bigger than just the external reporting that goes with um, the accounting side of the, the role. So I, I do think anybody who aspires to do this job would benefit from cross-exposure. A lot of times people get that later in their career, and that's, that's perfectly okay. You don't need to be an expert in every element of the job that you touch. You do need to know enough to be, be in a position to ask the right questions. And I think that's the, the way I sort of explain the benefit of the exposure I've had. I'm not an expert in accounting. I'm certainly not an expert in business finance, and there are probably people in my organization who are better um, business operators and supporters of our business than I am. And there are certainly better people at, you know, audit. Uh, but I, I've had enough exposure to all of those to know the right questions to ask to be able to help set strategy and remove roadblocks. And I think that's that's kind of the what what you're looking for. So it's okay to have a major, um, but I do think you you want some exposure to the other areas. And let's switch to FP&A which is a key, uh, key area in that finance organization um, that you're speaking about cross-functionally. What do you think is the core competency FP&A teams should have, uh, especially now when things are quite uncertain and volatile? Yeah, well, I, I think there, there's the broader sort of definition of the role, you know, where you're, you're, you're keeping the corporate scorecard on performance. But I really think that doesn't do justice to what is required to be a, a proficient FP&A operator or a proficient FP&A team. Your job is to connect information in, in, a, in now an increasingly VUCA world, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, to performance and to, to help the organization draw conclusions. And oftentimes, because of where the FP&A function sits in terms of the flow of information from the disparate um, business units or, or segments in our, in our case that make up the company from the corporate functions that also impact the P&L, you oftentimes are, are able to see things that are developing or emergent um, because you're in that flow of information. So, so the key, critical thing for me is you have to be able to, to not only take in and analyze information, it's being able to take that foresight and start to think about, okay, what, what can happen from here? You know, I've analyzed this and what is the so what? And how do I turn the so what into action? So foresight to insight and then insight into action. Um, problems only tend to get worse um, if you see them and all you're doing is passing them on. But if you see them, you're ringing the alarm bells and you're starting to think about what are the ways that we can um, find opportunity in other parts of the organization or um, opportunity in the information to, to potentially make different decisions and you start to shape and influence decisions. That is the sort of the critical uh, multiplier. And then the last is really around, you know, um, alignment and, and accountability. A lot of times things come together in the organization, the, the hard things. When you need to do cross-functional things across the enterprise, they almost always have to flow through FP&A as a connection point to make sure that 
what's being promised is 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 doable and that that ultimately um, what's being promised is deliver so that alignment and accountability in the organization is critical to taking things from idea um, so if you are for example need to distort resources in the organization a lot of times it's going to be fpna that figures out how to make that happen how to get money from or investment from one place in the organization to another how to hold people accountable, how we're going to measure and track this and ensuring that it actually happens at the end of the day. Um, because we all know that one of the final jobs of FP&A is actually they are the, the version of truth, um, the measurement for both um, external and management reporting often comes through the FP&A group and being able to connect those things to ultimately the incentive system that, that you know, drives the behavior in so many of our organizations. It's interesting. I like the in, for, foresight to insight to action triangle because it's it's it shows the active role that FP&A plays in supporting business growth. A lot of finance practitioners, professionals are very much precise or very tied to numbers, and I think given the foresight part of it, there's always some ambiguity. How do you see the mindset of a successful professional? Yeah, well, look, I, I think that there is a space and necessity for precision. When you are reporting actual results, absolutely. When you're doing the final measurement at the end of the quarter and drawing the line and showing you know, materials on what happened, you absolutely need, need that level of precision. When you are starting to, to do the, the forecasting component of your job, especially in an environment where effectively you're doing planning and forecasting um, and, and anything sort of forward-looking in an environment this volatile, this unstable, it, it requires a different skill set. You know, instead of sort of a deterministic mindset, which, you know, you, you, you've got a very linear, you do this plus this, and it gets you a very specific and precise outcome, you actually have to start thinking about this more in, in, in uh stochastic models or random outcomes, um, so, so or potential outcome, multiple potential outcomes, um, excuse me. So if you think about it more like an option tree, you have a certain set of facts and assumptions, and from there could flow three or four probable or possible um, sets of, uh, of outcomes. And being able to think through those and what are the range of potential outcomes that could come from a specific point in time and a specific set of assumptions, that's actually more what's required um, in today's FP&A environment. And that's been, you know, th that was certainly something we grappled with early on, you know, as, a, as an example. We went into lockdown effectively in most of the Western markets in March, late March of 2020, you know, February in, in, in China. And the challenge for us was, our fiscal year ends in May. So in the middle of, you know, the in the very beginning of the, the pandemic, we were actually out there trying to set fiscal year targets for a year out when the, the economy is effectively completely shut down. We've got people at home stockpiling food, which is our core business. And we've never seen demand like this. Uh, unprecedented. I've never used the word unprecedented so much, but it was it was unprecedented because it hadn't been seen in anybody's sort of modern corporate institutional memory. And so the challenge of setting targets in this environment is you're going to be wrong. 
anything that deterministic and that precise. So you have to set fixed and precise targets in a very volatile and dynamic environment. So what's critical is actually showing your work, right? So think about it like you know, a math problem. You have to say, these are the assumptions I'm making. These are the potential range of outcomes. We're going to plan here, but we know that our potential range of outcomes is going to be wider than it would in a normal environment because of the uncertainty. And then you have to figure out how you want to talk about that externally, how you want to set performance targets internally. All of that requires a lot more fuzzy logic than maybe finance professionals like me were trained to use growing up in, in organizations, um, whether it was Ford or, or frankly, even here at, at General Mills. So I think that's been the hard pivot. That is quite the pivot for, for a lot of people. But as you said, it's something that you've worked on for a while. I think something FP&A teams that are in the higher level of maturity have had to deal with. So let me ask you about the impact that FP&A can have on senior management, the board, and the kind of team that will have that impact. How do you get that seat at the table? How important is that? Well, I believe it's vital. I know it doesn't work that way in every organization, but I've maybe been privileged to work in three organizations where finance has a very specific and forward deployed seat at the table with the business partner and the business partners running the businesses and the corporate and enterprise leaders running the company. And there is space in that for the FP&A function and the leaders in it to actually not only just be observers and reporters, but to influence and to have a voice at the table, to make connections between seemingly disparate pieces of information from across the enterprise and help start telling a story about what might be happening um, in an environment such as this. And I think that the critical thing for me is that makes the jobs richer. It gives and reinforces the level of influence and, frankly, the share of voice that finance has. Uh, I like to say that, you know, in, in our organization, it's probably the thing that makes us what we call an indispensable business partner. We're oftentimes the first and the last, you know, business partner consulted before big decisions are made. And there are very few big decisions made in the organization without the engagement of the function. That's earned. It's earned every day by showing up and, and delivering value by providing good business advice, by providing insight, and not just saying, here's what's going to happen. I saw this. Here's the scorecard. It's, here's what's going to happen. Here's what I think we need to get on right now, and here's, here are some ways that we, in some places, we can start the conversation, right? I think that's what's, what makes a differential FP&A organization, is not just the connection of the dots, but, but really... Um, starting to think about solutions and starting to highlight problems and then move the organization towards action. And then ultimately, in some cases, even lining up the critical business partners necessary to tie it all together and move it to, uh, to fruition. So within that organization, I suppose, there has to be a certain level of technology automation to free up that organization to do the thinking and forecasting and foresight that you're speaking about from a switch a little bit and um, to the technology side and the enabling part of it, um, how is that being handled within the organization? Yet another element of uncertainty, perhaps? Yeah, well, I, I, it is, but it, I, I think your point is right, is there, are, there is a layer of routine analytical work, right, every month. 
you consolidate results or and you consolidate and translate forecast data into an enterprise forecast. Every month, your actuals, you turn them into both something that is, you know, aligned to external reporting and the accounting review of those results and something that aligns to the management reporting that you use to drive performance inside the organization. And you, you can automate in that space the routine things that you do repeatedly. So, you know, for us, we've been on a journey of what I call finance evolution, right? And, and you know, that, that was something we came to probably about four or five years ago. We started, you know, a, what we thought was a transformation project. And we found that it was actually both easier to manage through the change but like mentally also better for the organization to calibrate around the idea that we would continually review our processes for some degree of automation. Uh, we'd constantly be upgrading our tools, much like, you know, you get patches every couple of weeks for your iPhone to fix various things and address bugs and improve performance. It's the same thing with our, our tools. So we've been building a suite of tools to help us with some of the routine analytical things in management reporting. For example, we get our actual results. Um, th that consolidation is almost completely automated once you know the segments submit in our, our, our management reporting system, the consolidation happens. A first layer of review around things like what I'd call the, the higher level analysis of change, right? Which used to be something that each segment and within each segment, each business unit kind of did manually. And we had finance analysts do that. And then we'd spend a lot of time refining it, understanding, you know, the application of even modest differences of definition in AOC, right? So, you know, at the back of this is we've agreed to some standards to simplify that work to allow us to automate it. And so we want to spend more of our time as a proportion of our time on analysis of what I call the higher order, the, so, the, you know, the, the second and third tier explanations of what's, what's happened and then moving to what do I do about it and how do I, you know, how do I either improve or what action can I take from here to, to address problems or accelerate opportunity. Thank you. That um, is a great way to end our podcast with thoughts about never-ending change, uh, something all of us will have to face in the coming years or forever. So thank you, Kofi, for taking the time. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Strategic Finance Lab podcast. Please join us next time for more insights about the future of finance and the office of the CFO. I'm Anthony Michaels, editor of Neugroup Insights.